Thank you so much for joining us on Teach Me How to Money. I'm so excited to have our guest here today. It's Amanda Clayman. She is a clinical social worker and a financial therapist based in Los Angeles. Amanda, thank you so much for joining us. Thanks for having me, Lindsay. So let's just start out first. What is a financial therapist? <laughs> what indeed? Having practiced in the field for a dozen or so years, it is always remarkable to me that there is a profession now around this because when I started out, I felt like I was the only one who really saw a connection between psychology and behavior and the world of personal finance. Essentially, a financial therapist is the person who's going to work with you around the how of money in addition to the what of money. And what that means is sort of what you're working on in concrete terms, whether that is following a budget or being able to really engage with money and, and make choices about money, all the things that sort of get in the way of us being able to do that effectively, that is the, the purview of a financial therapist. So we are, we are experts in the messiness inherent in, in most of our financial lives. Well, I know a lot of our listeners can definitely relate to this. So tell me, uh, what are some reasons that someone would, would want to make an appointment with you? What are some issues that uh, you commonly see? There are a couple of things that, that we look at in a financial therapy relationship. Number one is if there's a real pattern of behavior that a person has a hard time breaking. So, you know, when you try to budget and you can't, or you're trying to get out of debt and you can't, and the other piece is when there is significant distress or or suffering really around money. So like you're able to get yourself to do those things, but you know you're just burning through so much energy and intensity and it just feels really difficult and you would like that to to work better for you in your life. So some people have real blockers when it comes to dealing with their finances. Um, what are some of the blockers that people people tend to face? The big ones that I see are anxiety around money and avoidance around money. And oftentimes these two things really sort of interact with each other, if you will, because if we live in that space, especially over a long time, what it does is it sort of, it reinforces and even confirms that part of our negative relationship and that part of our negative experience with money. Let me give you an example of that. So let's say you're really scared about making mistakes when it comes to money and you you feel like there's so much that you don't understand and and it's just something that you really hate to deal with. And because of this high anxiety, you know, money is one of those things that we often are like, I really intend to get better about this, but I'm going to start being better about it tomorrow, right? We all sure. just put it off for one more day. Right. And so our anxiety about it, it has to build up to a certain point where suddenly the choice to engage with money and to work on the thing that, that we're worried about, the, the stress that we feel, the anxiety that we feel is so great that we just decide, okay, I'm going to, to look at it. And what happens when we look at it is we're already in this really heightened an anxious state. So our limbic system is engaged. We're in that fight, flight, or freeze mode. And this is an experience and a process that's happening in our brains that is, is very separate from the part of our brain that can actually tackle money questions and make decisions and sort through answers. You know, we're out of all of those executive functions. We are out of the prefrontal cortex and we are in sort of survival mode. So all of this new information that we're trying to take in with our money is being processed in sort of the wrong part of the brain, if you will. And our limbic system is just going to read that as so much new. And new is another thing that we can often get really anxious about. So what we 
we end up experiencing when we finally overcome all of this resistance and avoidance is we get into an experience with our money that confirms the thing that we were trying to avoid in the first place. You know, we discover it really is as scary. Absolutely. And so what we've given our brain is the, the message that we were right to avoid it all along. And so when people are in this sort of anxious and avoidant loop with their money, things fall apart, right? That we miss due dates, we have late charges, we fail to take into account that we're going to have this additional expense this week, etc. And it can be so hard then to be able to find a place where you can really sort of push the pause button and reset what that experience is going to, to be for you. And that's a big part of the work that I often do with clients is helping them to recognize this negative dynamic in their lives, this negative pattern, and to be able to not just sort of grit their teeth and, and try to will it to be something different, but how to really work on that in a substantive and structured way. I mean, people have a genuine fear response to dealing with money. I've had friends tell me that, that they start to sweat, their, their palms sweat, they get uh, headaches, they get dizzy, they become so overwhelmed with like, it, and they have an emotional response. So, which is not really what you want when you're dealing with money, which is a, a kind of rational thing to deal with when it comes to columns and budgets. That's Those are things that you don't need to be freaking out over, but it causes people to freak out. It really does. Or sometimes we dissociate and we sort of just find ourselves unable to concentrate. Yeah. And that's also a response to anxiety. But as you were sort of describing there, you're mentioning like sweaty palms and your bracing heartbeat. We experience stress as a physical response. Um, this is something that's happening in our body. And so when we're trying to meet this, this physical feeling response with a bunch of thoughts and a bunch of information, those, those things often don't, it's just, it doesn't work. Right. And we're, when we're all trying to do our taxes, we see these inter, insurmountable receipts and we see all these columns to fill out and we worry the day is growing closer. And especially if you're a freelancer and you're filing quarterly, it can just, it can become so overwhelming. It all can feel very terrible. And rather than wish that we didn't feel terrible, there are ways that we can work with the reality of those reactions and those feelings and be able to process them and move through them and not get stuck. So as someone who personally gets a little anxious around money um, and someone like me who also wasn't, you know, I'm a, I was a liberal arts major, you know, I have sort of an art, I have an art background. So I've always felt, you know, me and math aren't friends. You know, and a lot of people say, oh, I'm no good at math. I'm no good with money. This is always going to feel alien to me. Is that something that you find your, your clients often come in talking about? Yes. And really, it it's not, I find that that's sometimes a little bit uh, misleading, the idea of, of math being important here. <laughs> because I think when people say they're not good at math or they're not good at money, they're they're not recognizing that it really isn't a math problem. It's an anxiety problem. And the reason that it's hard to process the numbers is just, again, you're not in that sort of frame of mind, literally. And to be able to work to bring our anxiety level down and then be able to stay with our feelings. You know, our feelings can be really helpful when it comes to knowing what's important to us and making decisions around our values. But we do want to thank anxiety for bringing something to our attention. <laughs> you know, the role of stress is to get us to sort of wake up and say, what is it that I need to attend to here? But then sure. to go, 
thank you, stress. You did your job. I'm paying attention <laughs> now. You can sort of go rest over on the sideline. I need to, to sit down and focus. So what makes people suddenly so afraid of money? Is it a family thing? Is it a school thing? What are some things that you might not think of that can cause people to be super freaked out about money and unable to cope? Well, the funny thing is, and this is why as a clinician, I find money such a a rich, no pun intended, um, area (laughs) of focus is because on one hand, we have money as it as it taps into our most basic sense of survival, right? So we need money in order to eat, keep a roof over our heads. So a lot of times when we are really worried about some of those those more catastrophic sorts of fears, that's because of the reality that we need money in order to, to survive. And humans are wired to survive even more than we're wired to be happy. So huh. we, we've got this survival drive. But then money also taps into all of these other more higher level drives, if you will. Like money goes into our sense of identity. It is a factor in relationships, right? Like if you've ever tried to figure out who should pay for what in a group outing. Sure, absolutely. All the way into like how we use money to self-regulate. So, you know, like when we're feeling insecure and we feel like buying a new outfit. Sure. Yeah. When, when you're stressed and shopping or when you, you feel sad, you buy something to eat. Exactly. But it's hard to sort through all of those different associations when you're trying to make a, a simple decision. And we really rely on our ability to just make these sort of gut intuitive choices and money sometimes feels like it it doesn't quite fit into that straightforward mold of how we want to be able to operate in our daily lives. So how can our parents shape the way we look at money? I think parents can do a couple of things that are really helpful. One is to make money a a topic of conversation, to acknowledge money. Because when we treat money as a a sort of secret or a taboo topic, children get a message that there's something inherently dirty or forbidden about money. And at the same time, they're going to pick up on the fact that money is really important, that money seems to be a factor in lots of things, or even if they're just noticing things co-occurring. Like I noticed that my parents paying bills and they're also being sort of short-tempered with me. Sure. So we get this like, ooh, what is this dangerous thing called money that becomes the foundation of our association there? And the other thing is when parents use a lot of sort of shame-based messaging as a way to teach financial behavior. So, you know, if a child is asking for sneakers and it's like, you know, how can you beg for that? We just got you this other thing, or you still have perfectly good sneakers that fit you. You know, a a child is getting a message about there's something about wanting and asking for that seems to be wrong. Like I've, I've clearly angered this person or I'm getting a message that I did something that's wrong. And that starts to give us a really skewed and, and wonky to use a, a, you know, clinical term there. (laughs) Um, (laughs) relationship with how we use money as a straightforward resource to meet our own needs. So let's talk a little bit about money shame, which is one of my favorite topics. So I'm sure people come to you, you know, 
feeling ashamed about their financial situation, whether they're in debt or whether they, they're living above their means or they think they're not doing as well as other people. Um, what are some other ways that money shame can manifest itself and become destructive? I see a lot of sort of avoidant and then binging behavior when money is, when our relationship with money is really shame-based. So again, we shame is a, is a very toxic sort of feeling. We, we want to avoid it at all costs because it, it feels so unpleasant. And so if we have a shame-based relationship with money, it stands to reason that money is going to be something that we want as little contact with as possible. So people often get into these denial cycles where they don't really want to direct money. They want to just try to need and want as little as they can. So they keep themselves in this sort of forced frugality. They just tell themselves no all the time. Their, their sort of default is set to no. And that's not really a, it's not a positive way to live, certainly, but it, it's also not a very realistic way to live because eventually we are either going to sort of run out of self-discipline for a moment, or we're going to need to loosen up our grip in order to procure the things that we need in our lives. And I find that once people sort of just loosen that grip and, and allow themselves to walk into Target to buy one thing, because they are in a different state of mind, they just go crazy and all of the, the need sort of rushes out into that opening. And it's like, well, while I'm here, I should get this and this and this and this. And that is your brain's way of saying, okay, she's, you know, she's put the blinders on so that she can buy one thing. We're just going to rush out and sort of all of that deferred need and deferred desire comes pouring through. I mean, buying things feels good. I mean, you have an, you have an actual response in your, in your brain when your credit card goes through, when you buy, when you shop online. I mean, that you're not wrong for feeling really good when you hit that button on Amazon. Correct. Yeah. I mean, a lot of times when people are shopping to reset their mood, that is a totally legitimate way of sort of getting yourself out of that unpleasant mood state that you were in. So on the flip side, um, can you talk to me a little bit about avoidance? So people who maybe don't open their bills, people who just sort of swipe and pray that they have money in their debit account, um, is that another way, another destructive financial cycle? It is. And this is the one in particular that I personally identify with. And it, it was this type of relationship and this type of process that brought me into my current field because I was the person who would... I would carry my bills from home to work with me um, in a little gift bag. <laughs> and I would think, like, when I get to work, I'm going to open these bills. Oh, I didn't get to it. When I get home, I'm going to open these bills. And it was, I mean, such a physical metaphor of baggage, right? I get it. I absolutely get it. And then in the middle of the night, when the anxiety over it would reach its peak and I would sort of get out of bed and open bills. And then I would, whatever I had in my bank account, I would throw toward a creditor and then of course leave myself no money. Yeah. I, I, I can relate to this completely. And I, I think that makes a lot of, you're also just sort of purging it and be like, I'm done with you. I'm done. And then you, yeah. I don't want to think about you. I'll send it all over here. I will make this one decision. <laughs> and it was devastating. I mean, personally and financially, like it felt awful to live that way. And it really 
it, I, I always want to offer this as a message of hope to people. Like it really doesn't have to be that hard. But first of all, we have to recognize when that's happening. Like for me, the reason that I, I gave myself for being in that situation was that I'm quote unquote terrible with money. Right. Right. I'm bad with this. Um, whereas really I was just stuck in a, in a broken process. I think that's great. I think that taking it away from this feeling of I am bad, I'm no good at this, to just this isn't the right way to do it. There's a more productive way to do it. It's not it's not my feelings. It's it's something more clinical and easier to deal with. Exactly. And it is the difference, too, between shame or negative emotion being a motivator to do something differently that will remove the cause of that feeling and internalizing the shame as something that we take inside of ourselves and, and believe is true of who we are. So what are some ways as some takeaways that people who are listening, who have, you know, who are, have bills that are piling up, who, you know, are, are kind of buried under the weight of, of, of their student loans, people who know they have something to tackle or they have tax debt. What are some steps they can take to begin to relieve their emotional burden and start dealing? I think first we have to reframe money as a resource that allows us to take care of ourselves. It is not more important than who we are. Having financial goals and and organizing our behavior to meet those goals doesn't make us an inherently better or more moral person. Um, So we need to, to, even just conceptually in the beginning, try to get more neutral around money. Okay. And, And to give ourselves positive messages about what we deserve. So financial mistakes, financial challenges, troubles, doesn't mandate that we need to suffer as a punishment for not being able to do the things that we have defined as being good with money. You know, like in the in the personal sort of cycle that I was describing, I really thought that I deserved to suffer around money because I was doing all of these wrong things. And I felt like my, my suffering was somehow the karmic currency, right? <laughs> that I like putting back into the universe because I'm so bad. Whereas to say like, I have this money in my life. I get to be the person who makes decisions about what I want this money to do for me. And I also am responsible and empowered in setting up the the boundaries of what I want money to be or not be in my life. So some people will say, I want to be intimate with my money. I want to know every decimal place of, of where this goes and how it comes in. And other people will say, I want my money to, to function well enough in my life. Like if I pay a late fee here or there, whatever, if I just have systems that are largely automatic, if I choose to have a more sort of light touch relationship with money, that's fine. And it doesn't mean that somebody else who's who wants a sort of higher touch relationship with money, it doesn't mean that they're doing this better than me. What is something that someone can do like today, like it, besides just deep breathing or breathing into a bag? What's the first step to gaining the confidence to tackle a financial issue? I would say just sitting with your money. So making it a daily practice or a weekly practice to do something really small. So whether that's check your account balance, if you don't normally do that, to open every uh, bill that you get, if you get electronic statements, et cetera, like just try to have contact with your money without 
getting too anxious. And it's sort of like exposure therapy, you know, like you just are practicing, not trying to do anything, not trying to fix anything. You're just trying to be able to be with this thing, um, with this area of your life and to not feel overwhelmed. Start very, very small. This is my last question. So say I'm I'm a member of the listening audience and I say to myself, oh, I wish I had a financial therapist. What can someone who doesn't have access to someone like you, what are some tools that are available to them? Well, the funny thing about being a financial therapist is there are so many people in this field coming at it from different directions. So so my background is obviously clinical social work. I'm working at it from the the point of view of a clinician. I think there are a lot of very like touchy-feely personal finance websites if you want to go there. I think you can follow people whom you uh, with whom you identify um, who are in the personal finance space. The other thing you can do is just to find somebody else that you want to work on this with, like a, a peer or a family member, friend, et cetera, and just try to make sure that you've got a a source of information or feedback that's going to be encouraging and positive and non-punitive, and that can help as well. What about um, something like Debtors Anonymous? Is that something that you would recommend to somebody as um, a place to start getting real with your money? It's a it's a great program. It's actually now split off into two programs. There's Under Earners Anonymous, and then there's Debtors Anonymous. So it used to just be that there were sort of under-earning meetings. These are taking a 12-step model, It's not necessarily, I don't know that it encompasses all kinds of money problems, but in terms of being clear and having a peer-led support group, I think that these programs have a lot to offer. And the difference really is the debtor-focused meeting is sort of looking more about choices about how money goes out. Um, Whereas on the under-earning one, it's, it's the ways in which we really can't support ourselves because we're, we're not, we don't feel strong enough or, or we have problematic behaviors when it comes to bringing in uh, the amount of money that we need and that uh, our services are worth. Well, this was so fascinating, and I really hope uh, we get to talk again soon. I, I've been fascinated with financial therapy, and I'm so glad I learned more about it. Well, thank you so much for having me. And uh, people want to learn more about you. Uh, how can they find you? Uh, you can find me at amandaclayman.com. I post content there. Uh, when I'm doing public speaking, I put that up as well. Well, it's been a pleasure. And thank you so much for telling us everything that you know. Great. Thank you. Thanks for listening to Teach Me How to Money. Send us your questions at teachmehowtomoney at stashinvest.com. And we'll try to answer them on a future episode. If you like what you're hearing, leave us a review on the iTunes store, Stitcher, or wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts. Don't have Stash yet? Just go to stashinvest.com slash podcast and you can get $5 to get you started on your investment journey. Stash, it's your money, simplified. This podcast should not be copied, distributed, published, or reproduced in whole or in part. The information contained in this podcast does not constitute a recommendation from Stash to the listener. Neither Stash nor any of its officers, directors, or employees makes any representation or warranty as to the accuracy or completeness of the statements or any of the information contained in this podcast and any liability, therefore, including in respect of direct, indirect, or consequential loss or damage, is expressly disclaimed. The views expressed in this podcast are not necessarily those of Stash, and Stash is not providing any financial, economic, legal, accounting, or tax advice or recommendations in this podcast. In addition, the receipt of this podcast by any listener is not to be taken as constituting the giving of advice by Stash to the listener, nor to constitute such a person a client of Stash.